Hey. Yo. Yo. Hey. So we have a ton of ground to cover tonight. We're going to try and get... Did you say hi, uncle? That's... Okay. I, 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 got, I got nothing. You caught me off guard with that one. Okay. So we've got a ton of ground to cover tonight. Um, our goal... If you remember yesterday, we ended our time together in John chapter 8. Our goal is to get, to, to get into John chapter 20. So um, that means you guys and I myself, are gonna, I'm going to have to be on my horse uh, to get there tonight. And so with that in mind, I, I want to I give you a sentence. Uh, and I think the sentence is going to be really important to kind of think through what's happening tonight. Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus doesn't make him a victim. It makes him victorious. Another way to say that is the crucifixion of Jesus isn't his hu humiliation, it's his coronation. And, and I'll walk through what those mean. Like, I'm just not throw those terms out to you. But like, like, if I was going to give you a main idea that I want you to get your arms around tonight is that understanding the importance of the death of Jesus, uh, when you look at it, it can be really easy from human eyes to look at it and say, that's really awful and really bad. And it is awful and it is bad, but Jesus isn't the victim of circumstance. He's actually victorious over all of it. And Jesus isn't just being humiliated by human hands. He's actually being coronated as king when he's going through his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. And so with that in mind, let me pray. And then I want to begin to just walk us through um, John from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 20. And so, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are um, our risen, victorious king. And there is no other king like you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we walk through um, this portion of John, seeing how there's just this collision course between the good that you were doing and the disruption that it was causing, that, Lord, that we would see that it, those two things weren't actually opposed to one another. It's been the plan all along to bring about the, the redemption of your people. And so, Lord, we trust you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So yesterday where we left off, uh, we had just told the story of a woman who had been caught in her sin, brought into the temple to be publicly accused and then executed. And Jesus, in a way that only Jesus can do, disrupts what's going on by asking the question, hey, whoever is perfect, has lived out the standard perfectly, any of you who's not trespassed, who's not deliberately sinned against God, and any of you who doesn't have something in you that's bent towards what's evil, any of you who's perfect, you cast the first stone. And the good news of that, especially for that woman, was nobody was like, yeah, I don't care, and like ran off, right? Like, like everybody recognized Jesus was laying something before them that they couldn't deny, that every single one of them was in the same boat with the nature of their sin, which was good news for her. The hard thing is that's also difficult news for us. Because if sin is a problem, particularly sin is a problem before a holy God, and what we've been hearing Jesus claim all throughout John is that he is that God being embodied, then our sin is a specific problem before him. And he can't be a good and a holy, righteous, perfect God and like turn a blind eye to sin. He can't be like, I mean, you know, it's not that big a deal. Like you just lied a few times, I'm over it. Because if he does that, then he's not holy, he's not perfect, he's not righteous, he's not good. But at the same time, if he's holy, righteous, perfect, and good, and he's got to deal with sin, and all of us have the same sin problem, and, we, and he can't be around sin, then that would mean that we can't be around him. And so somebody's got to fix this. And so we, le we were left with this tension of how does this get handled? 
If you continue to walk through John chapter 9, there's another story of a man who uh, was born blind. And people are dealing with the tension of there's something wrong here. And his disciples would even ask, hey, why is he in this situation? Is it because he did something sinful or is it because his parents did something sinful? And Jesus said, no, this is an opportunity for you to see the glory of God. And Jesus ends up healing this man. But in healing this man, we see this conflict showing up again. Jesus doing something that shows the goodness of God, but it also brings into conflict that he's so disruptive that it shows the brokenness of us. So this man gets healed. The Pharisees are like, who did this? And he's like, I don't know, I was blind. And now I see, that's all I got for you. And so they get frustrated and they're like, they're, they're trying to investigate. They're talking to his parents. His parents are like, he's a grown man. He can answer for himself. They go back to him and they're like, hey, who did this? He's like, I don't know. Are you trying to become one of his disciples? And so there's this frustration in them because Jesus has done something miraculous, but it disrupts the system. Ultimately, Jesus goes back to the guy and says, hey, do you want to believe in the Son of God? And he said, yeah, if you show me who he is, I'll believe in him. He's like, I am he. And he was like, I'm in, bro. And then from there, we move into this long teaching section where Jesus begins to talk about these two things. And, and you get to see this a lot. We talked about it a few days ago, that Jesus uses these words, I am he, a lot, or I am something, to set something up. Yesterday, we talked about I am the light of the world. Then he makes these two statements, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. And the idea of Jesus being the door is that I am the way into life for you. And then I am the good shepherd. Uh, he makes this analogy that, that, that shepherds, shepherds were not well-respected people back in the day. Um, oftentimes, shepherds were hired by somebody that was a manager over a lot of herds, and they would hire a shepherd, and the shepherd was supposed to take care of the sheep. And the shepherd was like, if something goes down, if these sheep are, sheep are in danger, you don't pay me enough. Good luck, lamb chop. I'm gone. And so for him to say, I am the good shepherd, he had to make a comparison. He's like, so the bad shepherds that you know, when something happens to the sheep, they run and protect themselves. But I'm the good shepherd that's willing to lay down my life for the sheep to make sure that the sheep that have been given to me are protected. This was a, a profound thing for Jesus to say. It was, again, this beautiful message from Jesus, but it also caused this conflict because those who were trying to hold on to the old system are like, well, when you say that, you call into question us. You're calling us the bad shepherds. Then chapter 11 happens where Jesus' friend Lazarus gets sick. And it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful story because because of the tension that had been happening so much with Jesus and his ministry, he actually has to leave the area of Galilee and Bethany because they're trying to kill him at this point. It's very clear. And then Lazarus gets sick and he's like, hey guys, we should probably go, we should probably go see Lazarus. Now, this is after several days that Lazarus has been sick, and at some point he dies, and the, he, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, Lazarus has died, and they're like, or he says to them that they've slept, that he's gone to sleep, and they're like, oh, sleeping's good. He's resting. He's going to feel better. And he was like, sleeping means that he's dead, guys. And so then they're like, well, we can't go back because they want to kill you. And Jesus is like, hey, this is an opportunity for you to see the glory of God. And so Thomas is like, because Thomas is Debbie Downer, Thomas is like, I guess we're going to go with him and die with him. And so Jesus goes, and uh, ultimately, uh, after having some really deep conversations with Mary and Martha, I wish I had time to talk to you about the emotional healthiness of Jesus, who knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead and still slowed down to cry. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's such an important moment that the Pharisees at this point are like, nah, man, we got to stop playing. We got to kill this dude now. 
In fact, uh, the high priest, his name's Caiaphas, makes the statement that he says that it is better for one man to die for all the people than for all the people to die because of this one man. Now, what Caiaphas is saying is, is politically advantageous for them. Because he's worried that the bigger Jesus' fame grows, the more Rome is going to get upset about what the Jews are doing and take away their freedom and take away their land. But what Caiaphas doesn't know is that he's actually prophesying what Jesus is intended to do, that one would die for all instead of all dying for themselves. Then he moves into chapter 12. Chapter 12, Jesus goes back into Galilee and these people begin to gather around him because they're curious. In fact, they're not Jewish people, they're Greek people and they wanna hear about Jesus. They've heard about his fame and Jesus begins to openly talk about this is the way that I'm going to die. And as he does that, you see that there are some people who say, we want to trust you and believe in you. There's some people who are like, this is fantastic, but we're not sure what to do with it. And then we see some people who are like, we've got to stop him. And the Pharisees, again, are starting to raise more of their effort. They're hiring officials to go after Jesus and kill him. And the officials are around him and they're like, yeah, we can't kill him. Like, this is, uh, this is too great. We, we can't do this. Then we move into chapter 13. It's just about a week before Passover. There's a moment of what they call the triumphal entry where Jesus is riding on a donkey into town and people are getting out olive branches and yelling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're treating him like he's a king. And the Pharisees are like, this is going to get us all killed. And so they now have a plan not just to kill Jesus, but to kill Jesus and Lazarus, which is really unfortunate to have already died, come back, and then have other people trying to kill you again. Like, this is a really rough, like, one week for Lazarus' life. He didn't even do nothing. He just came back from the dead, and they want to kill him too. So Jesus comes into town, and then he has this meal with his disciples where he begins to talk with them about what he's doing on their behalf. And in the midst of that, one of the disciples named Judas is Jesus knows that, that Judas is going to betray him, and Judas knows that he's going to betray Jesus, but nobody else knows and so the first thing that Jesus does is that he gets up from the table and he takes off a towel and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And, and you have to know in that day and age, uh, being the person that washes the feet is kind of like being uh, the lowest person on the totem pole that works at the supermarket that's got to sweep the floors at the end of the night. And Jesus is taking the lowest position. He says that I'm your Lord and teacher, but I'm making an example for you that you're supposed to love and serve one another. What's crazy is that he's loving and serving and washing the feet of the guy that's going to walk out of the room and betray him for 30 pieces of silver and give him over to be killed. Then he begins to have the meal with them. And ultimately, this is if you've ever taken communion, this is where communion comes from is in this setting. And then Judas gets, out, uh, gets up and leaves. Jesus then goes with his disciples to go pray. But in the, in the, before they get there, they begin to have this conversation because they're wrestling with what's going on? What are you asking us to do? We don't understand what you're doing. And then when you get to John 14, it says this, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Uh, that where I, may, where I am, you may also be, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, and, and, and we'll talk more about Thomas tomorrow, but I just, let me just say, I appreciate Thomas because Thomas asked the questions that nobody else asked. Like everybody else might be thinking that Thomas like, look, I'm just going to ask. Uh, Jesus, you said we know how to get there. 
We don't know how to get there. How can we know the way? And hear Jesus' response. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this brings us back to attention that we had talked about earlier, that if there is a holy God who can't be around sin, and Jesus says that he's him, but also we have this reality that we need, he's, he's a forgiving sin of people. How does that happen? And there needs to be a way back to God if we've all recognized that we're sinful. And he's beginning to make these statements that I'm going and I'm preparing a place for you and you know how to get there. And they're all like, no, we don't know how to get there. You've been with us for 14 chapters. We're not that smart. You're gonna have to give us some turn by turn directions, Jesus. And he says, I'm the way. If you're looking for truth, I'm the truth. If you're looking for life, I'm the life. That there is no other way to the Father except through me. Now, a lot of times when we hear that, we think, okay, this is a conversation about comparative religion. And so it's a conversation about, well, what does Buddhism offer? Or what does Islam offer? Or what does uh, this offer or that offer? And I, I think that's true. I don't think it's the wrong way to read that. But I think Jesus is going a step deeper. Not just are other religions the way, but is your own self-effort the way? Because the problem that we get into is not when in this setting that somebody's like, well, after I finish camp here, I'm now going to go to Islam camp next week. Like, I just, I just don't think that tends to happen. I think what tends to happen is that we get to hear the message of Jesus and we say, okay, we've got to get to God. We've got a sin problem. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix it by being better myself. And Jesus is clearly saying to them, if your game plan is to try and figure out the way on your own, that's not going to work because I'm the way. From here, Jesus begins to just unpack for nearly three chapters. What does it mean for him to be the way for them? And what does it mean for them to understand that when he is gone, that the world is going to treat them like they treated him, but he's not left them on their own, but he's empowered them with the Spirit of God. He begins to say things to them like, it's better for me to go that the Spirit might come so that you can do things that you wouldn't have been able to do if I stayed here with you. He begins to say things to them like, hey, here's the goal for you, that you abide with me, that you're not able to do anything about without me, but if you stay connected to me, you're going to be able to accomplish the thing that I've called you to. He begins to say things to them like, my prayer for you is that you guys would be, be one like me and the Father are one. Like just some really beautiful, meaningful things. And then when they go out to pray, it says that Judas knew the place that Jesus liked to pray. And he brings soldiers with torches and lanterns to come get him. And I wish I had time to build out the beauty for you of how this lays out. Um, because when they show up, they're all standing there and Jesus asks them the question, whom do you seek? What are you looking for? If you remember back to John chapter 1, that he had, he had Andrew and John following after them. They were following after him, and they're, and they're trying to figure out who he is. And he's like, hey, what do you seek? What are you here for? And then when, when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, his response is, I am he. And I just mentioned to you that all throughout the book, he has all these times that he says that I am, I am the light of the world, I'm the bread of life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. He lays out all these I ams, but maybe the most powerful, fearless I am of the entire book is this group of soldiers with weapons coming to take his life. And Jesus isn't hiding in the corner and saying, I have never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. 
In this moment when it would make the most sense to hide, he steps forward and says, I am he. And then it's so powerful in that moment that the soldiers fall back. Like, imagine a group of people coming to beat you up and you stand there and say, who are you looking for? Oh, I'm looking for Mike. I am he. And the whole group of people are like, oh. This is literally what's happening. And so Jesus asked them again, who are you here for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, didn't I tell you I am he? Let these other guys go and come get the person that you came for. Then Peter steps up and is like, well, man, this is my moment. Grabs his sword, swings his sword, and cuts the dude's ear off. Now, here's what I know. If you flick somebody in their ear, it's annoying, but you're probably not going to win the fight. So I don't imagine that Peter's game plan is, these dudes are going to try and arrest and kill Jesus. I'm going to cut a dude's ear off and let them know. And so I'm like, Peter, how bad is your aim? Second question, Peter, you, you guys just left dinner and we're going to a prayer meeting. Who said, oh, we could get our Bible, get my prayer shawl, get my shank in case it goes down in the garden? Like who, who takes a sword to a prayer meeting? And so I, I'm really confused by what Peter's motivations are right now, but, but nonetheless, Jesus turns to him and says, hey, should I not drink the cup that my father's given me? Why am I taking the time to tell you all this? Because what's happening with Jesus isn't some plan that he didn't know about that all of a sudden he becomes a victim of Judas' scheme or, or the Pharisees' plot to kill him. Like Jesus knows what's going to happen and he leans into it. He doesn't hide when they come looking for him. He says, I am he. He doesn't try and fight back and even when others try and fight on his behalf. He doesn't say, okay, yeah, protect me. You guys get, th- 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 you guys get this seven, you guys get this seven. I'm going to break that way and I will, we'll meet up again on the other side of Bethany at Lazarus' house. In fact, even going to heal Lazarus, he knew that they wanted to kill him, and he's going to the place where they want to get him. Like Jesus is not being trapped in some plan that he doesn't know about like a victim, but he's stepping into it. And then we'll see unfold chapter, some of chapter 17, some of chapter 18, just the plan to accuse Jesus and arrest Jesus. It's interesting because the first trial that they have of Jesus is actually an illegal trial. In the, in the Jewish law, you can't hold a trial at night. And the first thing they do is they take him in the middle of the night to Annas' house. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the high priest. And they, they begin to accuse him and say, hey, we've heard that you said some things. And I'll just tell you, like, on the way to crucifixion, Jesus is my favorite Jesus because Jesus just says some real cold-blooded stuff. Like, I'm like, yeah, that's my king. And so they're like, we've heard that you've been saying, and he was like, I said it in public. You were there. Ask the people that heard it. If I said anything wrong, they would tell you. And so one of the soldiers hauls off and punches Jesus in the face. And Jesus looks at him and he said, if I said something wrong, then tell me what I said wrong. Otherwise, you don't have any right to hit me. Like, this is not a man that's cowering as a victim of something that's happening against his will. This is a man who's standing up in boldness, saying, you can do whatever you want, but ultimately, the plan's under my control. So much so that these, uh, these Pharisees take Jesus in and say, okay, um, this is not working, so we're going to now take you to Rome. Because you're apparently not afraid of our authority, but we'll take you to Roman authority, and they can deal with this, and they can also be the bad guys in this situation, so we're going to put it on them. So Jesus then gets taken to 
a man named Pilate, who's a Roman governor. When you get into John 18, you begin to see this part of the story unfold. John 18 would say this, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Passover is the, the meal that happens uh, for Jews to celebrate how the Lord brought them out of captivity. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But they wanted to be able to eat the meal and, and so they did not want to go to the house of somebody who didn't worship that way. So they're like, hey, we're not coming inside, but we need you to do some stuff for us. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? So read that as, bro, I don't care. It is early in the morning. Y'all deal with your business. He said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, I think this is really important because Pilate is this person that doesn't understand this Jewish system and what's going on. And he's like, I, I don't even know why you're here. What did you do? And Jesus, like Jesus often does, doesn't answer the question that's asked. He answers the question that needs to be asked. And so his response to him is that my kingdom is not of this world. Now, part of what he's saying to him is, like, I understand this Roman Empire thing that you're a part of. And you need to know about Pilate. The reason that Pilate was where he was was because Pilate got in a lot of trouble with Rome and Pilate kept getting in trouble on his job. And so it's kind of like, hey, you've been demoted and here's your job. You got to deal with these Jews. So Pilate doesn't want to be there. Pilate doesn't want fights to break out. Pilate doesn't like this. Pilate's trying to get himself back on the good list. And so he's part of this empire, but he's not even a strong part of the empire. And Jesus says to him, my kingdom's not of this world. Like this, this authority that you're playing around with here because you're, you represent Rome and you're supposed to be overseeing us, that means nothing to me. If I was trying to play the same game that you were trying to play, then, I would be, then my people would be fighting against what's going on. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so then Pilate's like, wait a minute, are you a king? And I think that's a really important thing to think about with Jesus. Like for Jesus to be considered king is a, is a powerful claim. That's actually what the idea of being the Messiah means. But I just want you to think about how kings operate in kingdoms. When kings want to win wars, kings don't tend to get on the front lines themselves. Uh, in our, our nation, the, the president is called the commander-in-chief. And that's because uh, the military works under the authority of the president. But here's what I know, that if a fight breaks out, I don't think that our president is going to be on the front line fighting people with hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
Maybe that happened back in the day with George Washington, but even George Washington, when he became president, wasn't fighting in hand-to-hand combat. And so it's uncommon for kings to be the people who want to fight the fight to set people free. And so it's this interesting situation where Jesus is being taken to unlawful trials, being punched in the mouth, being treated like he's this common criminal and peasant, and yet the conversation around them is that this guy seems to be some kind of king. So it seems like the cross of Jesus, what it should be a humiliation. The Roman idea of the crucifixion was the the coward's death of a thousand deaths. And so leading him towards crucifixion was meant to be this humiliating death, that you're being hung up with common criminals, that you were there naked, that you, that you suffered until you couldn't breathe anymore. We'll, read, we'll hear later on that at one point, to hurry up the process of killing criminals on the cross, they would break their legs so they couldn't push themselves up and breathe. Like this is this brutal death that's meant to humiliate you for the crimes that you've committed. And at the same time, while they're, they're setting him up for that kind of death, one of the world's superpowers is wrestling with how much of a king he really is. Here's the other thing about that. What would it, it's uncommon for a king to get into a battle and fight a war, but what would it look like for a king to do so? I once heard a story. I don't know if it's true, but I think it's impactful, so I'll share it. There was a uh, Native American chief, and in the tribe that he led, the way that they kept order was when someone committed a crime, they publicly, uh, they had a public trial, and then as a people, they would decide what was the worthy punishment for the person that committed the crime. And so in their tribe, at a certain period of time, uh, somebody began to steal things from other tribe members um, and they're like, You've, we've got to figure out who this is, and we're not even going to wait for the trial to figure out what the punishment should be. This person should be publicly whipped and beaten because they're stealing from their own people. So an investigation took place, and the chief found out that the person who was committing the thefts was his mother. And so now we have a tension. Because he cannot be a good, right chief who wants to uphold what's good if he turns a blind eye to the crimes that his mother's committed. But at the same time, who can give their mother whom they love over to be punished and beaten publicly in front of a crowd? So the day of the punishment comes and the chief is sitting there and they bring out his mom and everybody in the tribe is like, he's not going to do this. There's no way he's going to do this. It's his mom. And he asks the person who is in charge of the whipping to affix his mom to the pole in which she is supposed to be whipped upon. And so at that point, everybody's like, oh no, this just got real. He's going to do this. So the, the person that has the responsibility of punishment rears his hand back to begin to whip and the chief stops him. And then everybody's like, of course he wasn't going to do that. There's no way he was going to do it. And then the chief gets up and wraps his arms around his mom and tells the the person that's going to start the whipping to continue. And he receives every lash that his mom is supposed to receive as punishment for what she deserves. And as much as that story is impactful, maybe in its reality, possibly in its fiction, the truth of what Jesus does as a king to receive punishment for us 
is that he then is not just humiliated by, the, by this setup against him, but he is then has his beard pulled from his face, has a crown of thorns shoved on his head, has his back ripped open with lashes to make sure that he feels the punishment. Then they wrap a robe around his bloody and beaten and, and mutilated back just so they can rip it off and cause more punishment. They give him a heavy cross and ask him to walk the streets carrying his own cross. They affix him by his wrist and his feet to that cross, put him up in the middle of the air and leave him there in public shame to be executed. What kind of king takes on the punishment of his people? Caiaphas maybe may have been wrong in why he said it, but he wasn't wrong in what he said. That one was choosing to die for the many that, they, that all might live. The writer of Hebrews would explain why this was necessary. Hebrews chapter 9 um, if, you, if you don't understand the, the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. We seem to believe that it was written to Jewish people who are wrestling with going back to their historic Jewish faith because of all the trouble that they're facing. And the writer of Hebrews spends a ton of time just explaining why Jesus is better. So he talks about why Jesus is better than angels and Jesus is better than Moses. And then where we're going to land, he starts talking about why Jesus is better than the sacrifices that they were used to. So Hebrews chapter 9 starting in verse 11, would say this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an internal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the, uh, of the, on the, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, that, I'm, that kind of probably felt like, man, you just opened up a fire hose and there's a whole lot of words and I'm not sure what's going on. So let me, let me slow down and explain. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is there used to be this system that we used to live by that anytime we needed to satisfy um, the, the payment for our sin, here's what we would do. We would have broken priests who were sinful themselves and they would take the blood of goats and they would take the blood of calves and they would sacrifice those things and they would sprinkle everything to make it pure because sin causes death and requires blood. And so he said, if that's been going on for ages and ages and ages and ages... How, how beautiful is it that Jesus would step in and say, instead of using an animal that's going to be temporary, I'll lay myself down. How beautiful is it that in that season, I mentioned to you that they didn't want to go into, into Pilate's house because it was Passover season, and maybe you don't know what the Passover means, and so here's what was happening in the Passover. The wrath of God was going from house to house to destroy people, to destroy families, particularly firstborn sons, and the only way that you could keep that from happening was that you had to kill a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost. It was this idea that if you were under that covering of the blood, that there was going to be no wrath or no penalty for you. And so you've got these people who want to celebrate the moment of God having his wrath pass by them, completely missing the moment of God's wrath being made to pass by them in Jesus. 
And so Jesus is the better version of any other sacrificial system. He's better than anything that anybody else could come up with to try and make themselves right before God. Jesus on the cross is the explanation of God saying, you couldn't do this, so I did it on your behalf. The writer would go on to say this, therefore he's a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, the promised eternal inheritance, since Death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Uh, you need to understand covenant. Every time that a covenant happened, there was a ceremony around a covenant. So if you've been to a wedding, you've seen a covenant. So when a man and a woman exchange rings and they, they make all these flowery promises to each other and everybody's like, oh, they're, they're actually entering into a covenant. Uh, one of the first covenants in the Bible is this covenant of a, a guy named Abraham. And so Abraham was told by God, hey, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Like the, the, the people that are going to be part of your family, that, there's going to be more, that you're going to have more people in your family than the stars in the sky, than seas on the seashore or sand on the seashore. Y'all live in California. You know there's a whole lot of sand on the seashore. And so Abraham's like, I, I can't. I, I can't have kids. Like we've been trying and it, it ain't working. And the Lord's, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a covenant with you. So it's time for the covenant ceremony, and the Lord asks Abram to cut these animals in half. And then the, the, the ceremony is supposed to be like this, that you're supposed to walk down the middle of those animals as to say, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, then I'm as good as one of these dead animals that's on the other side of me. So the moment comes when Abram and God are supposed to walk down this bloody path. And when the moment comes, Abram's over in the corner taking a nap. Like, can you imagine showing up at somebody's wedding? The bride looks all beautiful. She's walking down the aisle. It's time to exchange the rings. And people are like, hey, where's the groom? Oh, he's back in the green room taking a nap. I promise you, he really wants to be a part of this. And what was happening was that Abram is laying on the ground and the Lord passes through the middle of this bloody covenant as if to say, I got this all by myself. And when you read Hebrews and he says, therefore, Jesus is this mediator of the new covenant that he is walking through. And he's like, if you fail your part, I still got you. If you sleep on the job, I'm still going to make this right. I'll pass through. I'll take the penalty. I'll make this right. And so here's how I'm going to deal with your sin. I don't expect you to figure it out and get it right. I'll take the penalty on me so that way you got a new chance. Then he says, for, the will, for where will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled uh, with the blood, the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves uh, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, 
For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it, as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Yes, yeah, that's good news. But here's what I want you to hear. Because if you, if you didn't grow up around the church, it may feel weird that we're so geeked up about this crucifixion thing. Or maybe on the flip side, maybe you did grow up around the church and maybe you just haven't asked the question, like, why does death have to be the way? Like, if God could create out of nothing, isn't that what we talked about in the first morning? Like, couldn't he just fix this by speaking to it? Could he, could he have just said, hey, you know what? I'm going to make you guys right once and for all. I'm going I'm I'm to make sure that each and every one of you, that that sin thing on the inside of you is now fixed, that you're not going to do this anymore, and we just have to do this. And, and the writer of Hebrews was like, the way that things are purified because of sin has to deal with death. And so it's either your death or somebody dying on your behalf. And Jesus says, I've got this once and for all. Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus was being victorious and overcoming sin. And I love how the writer of Hebrews ends because the way that he ends is he says, so he dealt with sin once and when he shows up again, he's not going to be coming back and be like, all right, I guess I got to do this sin thing over and over again. It's not this limited sacrifice. It's this sacrifice once and for all that never needs to be done again. Which means 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on the cross and he said it, was, it is finished, when he was saying that, he wasn't just saying that I've done what needs to be done for me. He's saying I've done what needs to be done for you. And so whatever category of sin that you got, whatever thing that you bring in here that you think, man, it's so bad that I don't even want to talk about it, what Jesus is saying is I've paid that debt. There's nothing else that needs to be done. There's nothing that needs to be added for you to be saved. You just need to, back to John 14, 6, believe in me because I've made the way. But I love that he doesn't stop at the first time, but he says, but Jesus will come again. Well, how does that happen? We saw in the video, can you imagine what it would have felt like on that Friday to watch the Savior whom you followed be crucified? Can you imagine what that moment would have been like for Jesus, that he had had 12 people who had followed him closely, and then when he looks down at his crucifixion, the only two people that are still there are his mom and John who's writing this book. It looks like he failed. It looks like they failed. He dies, gets pulled down from the cross. A dude who was too scared when Jesus was alive to say that he believed in him goes to Pilate and says, hey, can I have his body? I'll make sure that he gets buried. They can't finish burying him properly because it's the day of preparation before Passover, so they can't play around with a dead body. Otherwise, they can't have the meal. And so they put him in a tomb that had never been used, and they roll a stone in front of it because their intention is to come back and, and to handle preparing him. We call that day Good Friday, but can you imagine how dark that day would have felt? That the one who'd been walking around saying that he'd been the light of the world feels like he'd been snuffed out. Can you imagine how bad that day would have felt when he'd been telling you things like, I go to prepare a place for you, and it's like, where are you going to go now? You're, you're a dead, cold body in a tomb. 
And I can imagine that Friday would have felt awful, but can you imagine how terrible Saturday must have felt? Because if Friday was the day that you're in shock, Saturday is when reality sets in and you're like, he's not coming back. How's he going to get out of a tomb with stones and a soldier in front of it? Saturday is that dark day where it feels like there's, there's nothing's changed and we were hoping that it was going to change. That, that he got Lazarus out after four days, but there's nobody else like him, so who's going to get him out? And then the third day comes. And Mary goes to the tomb because she's like, we've got a responsibility that we've got to take care of his body. And she gets to the tomb and the stone's rolled away and he's not there. She goes back and she tells Peter and John, and I love the way John writes about it because it's like Peter and John were running and Peter at first was outrunning him and then John, which he calls the other disciple, actually outrun him and was the first one to look in like, why you got to tell who won the foot race? But they look in and Jesus' body is not there. And they're stuck with this dilemma. He told us that he was going to do this. Do we actually believe what he said? And I think the appropriate way for us to end tonight is that all week we've been telling you what Jesus said he was going to do. And now we're confronted with the reality of it. Will you believe it? It's sometimes the hardest thing to do is just believe. Especially if you're a type A person who likes to do stuff, who likes evidence, who likes to produce and be productive, and you like to say, I accomplished that. that if, you're the, if you're the person that's like, I get, I get stuff done. And somebody says to you, I don't need you to do anything. I just need you to believe. That could feel like I'm asking you to do the hardest thing in the world. But in that moment, there's nothing for Peter and John to produce. There's nothing for Peter and John to achieve. There's nothing for Peter and John to accomplish. All that Peter and John could do is say, Jesus has proclaimed himself as the one who is going to take away the sin of the world. That's what we heard from day one. That's what got us into this. And now that we're facing the reality that our belief is going to be challenged, will we believe what he said to be true or are we going to try and trust something else? For those of you in this room, and maybe you did some of this work already last night, we talked about the reality of our sin. And Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I am the king that is willing to take the penalty of your sin. I'm willing to be the once and all for all sacrifice. That way that your sin does not have to be resting on you. I'll take the penalty of it for you. And the only thing required for you to receive that is to believe it. I, I live in a part of LA where we have a lot of homelessness around us. Um, they're, they're, when we drive under the 110, there's a, a homeless encampment of, of just tents upon tents and people upon people who are, have nowhere to live. The unhoused community is, is just prevalent in, in the area that I live in. And as sad as that is, you know what would make me more sad is if I met somebody who is living on a tent on the side of the road and they actually had keys to a house, but they just wouldn't use it. 
You know what would blow my mind is if I walked into somebody's house and they were laying in their living room starving, and I I would be heartbroken that they didn't have food, but I would even be more confused and heartbroken if they had a refrigerator full of the best meat in the world and they just hadn't taken access to it. And my fear is that you could hear the message of Jesus, and the only thing asked of you is to believe it, and some of you would refuse it. So tonight, I want to give you an opportunity because we've said all week that Jesus is the truth of God. And if he's true, the way that you respond to truth is that you believe it. So tonight is your opportunity to say that you do. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to close your eyes and bow your head. And here's the reason I'm doing that. I think sometimes the thing that keeps us from responding the way that we should to Jesus is that we're worried about the people around us and what they may think, or we may be distracted by just their mere presence. And so I just want to ask a simple question, and you can respond by raising your hand. If we all have a sin problem that needs to be dealt with, Do we believe the message of Jesus that he is the way to deal with our sin and bring us back to the Father? Yeah, for some of you, I didn't even tell you what to do next and you just already shot your hand up and I love that. For some of you, you have believed that before, but you haven't lived that way. And I would say the remedy for your doubt is to trust Jesus. For others of you, you have never believed that. Maybe you've never even heard that. But if Jesus is pounding on your heart saying, I'm here, trust me, I'll cover your sin, and you want to respond to him, would you just shoot your hand up so I know who I'm praying for? Some of you already did, but I want want to make sure that I don't miss any of you. All right, let me pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you're a king like no other. That instead of sending a nation to die so that way you could be preserved, you instead would go and die for many so that we could live. And Lord, my deepest desire for the students that are under the sound of my voice is that they would know and believe you that they would believe that there is no amount of sin that they could could have committed that you didn't pay the penalty for already, that there's nothing that they have done, that no matter how long that they've done it, that you are incapable of covering by your blood, that you once and for all have covered them, and that you weren't just some victim of a a plan by the Pharisees and Judas, but you won victory on their behalf by being willing to be sacrificed. And so, Lord, would you, would you stir in these students a new sense of freedom? Whatever sin that they feel like they've been bound by, whatever things that they feel like they could not master, would you let them know, this is what you say in John 8, that those that are slaves to sin will never be free, but the Son comes, and who the Son sets free is free indeed. You are that Son. Would they believe in the freedom that you've provided? Give them the grace to live in a new day and to follow after you. It's in your matchless name I pray.
Amen. Now, here's what I want to invite you to do. The worship team's going to come back out, and we're going to worship together. And I'll just confess to you, um, worship is unique to the rest of the world. When I, uh, I used to work at a church in Dallas, and uh, I had a young man in my ministry, and his grandmother came to meet me, and she just wanted to have a conversation. And so I didn't know her well, and so I just said, hey, tell me your story. How did you start coming to church? And so she said, well, I started coming because of my grandson, Sonny. He was in a children's play, and I came to see the children's play, and uh, my heart was captured. I heard a message. I started crying. She's like, I started singing along with people. And like she, as she talked about it, I was like, this is kind of weird, right? Like, you don't go to Best Buy. You don't go to Best Buy anyways. You go to Amazon now. But back in the day when people went to Best Buy, like, you didn't walk into Best Buy and, like, start putting your hands up and singing the Taylor Swift videos because they had a bunch of TVs up. That would be really weird. And so what is this thing that we do that we come together and sing? And so let me tell you that this is what we're doing when we sing to the Lord. Like, we're making this defiant announcement to the world around us that this is what we believe regardless of what it looks like. So here's what I know. Some of you raised your hand and said, okay, I believe you, Jesus. And then the thing that happened next was in the back of your mind, but I still don't know how I'm going to overcome this. I don't know how I'm going to deal, like, deal with this. I still feel trapped into this. And here's what worship does. Worship says, I know what surrounds me, but I just want to look past that up to Jesus and say that you're better than what I think and what I feel about what's around me. And so for some of you, what I want to offer you is what you have in Jesus is not like this kind of, like, like we use hope a lot. Like, I hope that the Lakers are going to be good this year. Don't boo. Don't boo. I don't need you to do that. Don't mess with my hope right now. But like, but that's just kind of like wishful thinking that doesn't really change anything. Like me hoping really hard isn't going to make Russell Westbrook really good at shooting jumpers. Like hoping in the way that we talk about it in the human way doesn't change anything. But hope when it's based in Jesus is not just this kind of dormant wishful thinking that kind of makes us feel a little bit better for a little while until we realize that it's not doing much. It's actually living hope that transforms the way that we see the world. And so what I want to give you the opportunity to do is in a moment we're going to stand and sing. And for some of you, you're going to be declaring for the first time that all the rest of my life I was hoping in my achievement and my efforts and what it got me to was recognizing that I don't have the power to overcome my sin. But when I put my hope in Jesus, now I recognize that once and for all, he's dealt with the penalty of my sin and now I have hope for life eternal because that's what he's guaranteed me. For others of you, you've known Jesus for a while, but maybe you've not followed him at a faithful pace. Here's what living hope does for you, that he loves you enough to say, I, I know where you've stumbled, and I, I covered that too. I'm alive. I don't need to do this again because I covered it once and for all, and so therefore you can trust me all over again because the hope that you have in me wasn't just this hope that died and a sacrifice and now you need something new. It's this living hope that continues day after day after day that I'll satisfy the covenant even when you fail at it. And so I want to invite you to stand. I want to invite you to worship. 
I want to invite you to lift your voices in this defiant cry that says, I don't care what it looks like around me. Jesus is king, and he's better than all that I see. And so will you stand to your feet, and will you worship Jesus?